Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and BBC television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. It's a huge pleasure for me to invite on today a really good friend of mine. Dr. Rupi Orgelet. Welcome, Rupi. Hey, mate. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thanks for making some time today to come on the podcast. my pleasure. Absolutely. So Rupi is an NHS GP, and he started a project that I'm a huge fan of called The Doctor's Kitchen. And Rupi, instead of me actually trying to tell the listener about The Doctor's Kitchen, it might be better if you can share what caused you to start The Doctor's Kitchen and what is The Doctor's Kitchen? Sure, yeah. I suppose I would say it started in my head about five or six years ago. When I was in GP, I was training as a registrar at the, t- at the time, and I was constantly running late because I'd be writing down recipes and trying to inspire my patients how they could eat their way to health, whether that be to manage their diabetes or improve just their general well-being as well. It didn't always need to be about weight. So I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I started a blog or a YouTube channel where I create recipes and I talk about the clinical research behind the ingredients I use in an effort to inspire everybody about how our plates are positive health interventions. So I mustered up the courage to do just that about two years ago when I was working as an emergency doctor in Sydney. And I recorded my first video in my kitchen just talking about... <laughs> I think I was talking about micronutrients or something like that. And uh, I, I filmed a couple of recipes and I was so nervous about putting it out. But luckily, the reception from both patients and my colleagues was was really positive. And since then, I just continue to do the same thing on social media. I'm on Instagram and I create recipes and I, I basically pull in lots of different research that I think is going to be engaging and motivating to patients to use. So... I suppose that's the doctor's kitchen in a nutshell. It's had other reach outside that. But um, but yeah, that was what it started as. Yeah, Rupi, I mean, you can tell your passion when you talk about it. And I think that certainly comes through on your channels as mm. you're, you're incredibly motivated, but you're, you're passionate to help make it easy for people and make it practical for people. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think there's certainly that commonality between what we both do in terms of, I think we really believe in people. We believe that they have got the ability to become healthier and therefore happier. But what we're trying to do in our own way is give people tools to totally. do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what, the thing that comes to mind when you, you were describing Doctor's Kitchen is we're both, you know, we both work as GPs. Mm. And in the NHS, currently we have this 10-minute consultation model. And I know over the past few years, as I have studied more and more the therapeutic value of lifestyle and nutrition, the whole 10-minute consultation concept comes up. Yeah, but how can you do it? And one of the ways I've managed to, you know, it's not ideal, but one of the ways I've managed to do it is by finding online resources or online things or books that I I like and I trust 
almost setting the scene in the consultation, but then referring people to to look at various things. And it sounds as though Doctor's Kitchen started very much with that that, that idea in mind. Totally, yeah, yeah. Because because I was running late, um, I literally just didn't have time. And not to say that I still don't run late. I still <laughs> run late all the time. As I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. Uh, like by the end of my consults, it's probably like an hour and a half. But that's because it, you know it just comes out and people have questions, etc. But yeah, it really was a time-saving resource. And I employ that same tactic, I think, still today. Signposting, giving patients homework, kind of gives them the idea that this is something that they need to take control of. They need to to put effort into. It's not just that 10-minute consultation. The GP is going to give me a medication. I'm going to feel really better. It's not how medicine works, but that's how we've been tricked to believe. And that's the sort of culture that we've made around going to the GP surgery, whereas Exactly like you're saying, signposting, using online resources, getting people motivated about it and getting them to do a lot more work around their conditions is what I'm a massive fan of. And that's what we need to try and encourage as well. Yeah, absolutely, Rupi. So Rupi, I've been a practicing doctor for 16 years now. How long have you been practicing for and how long have you been a GP for? Yeah, so I qualified as a doctor in 2009. So it's been about nine years now. And I qualified as a GP in 2014. So GP for four years now. Yeah. And um, so I'm still quite junior in my training, I would say. But in the last few years, my learning curve has just been so steep. And it's fantastic to have people like yourselves to look up to and actually get resources from. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, we never stop learning. We're always picking up new bits of information and trying to find ways in which to um, give people access to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Rupi, one thing I've always liked about you is... You know, something about you really resonates with with me and how I view things, which is I've never been scared to learn from any health discipline. I'm very happy to learn from a meditation teacher. I'm very happy to learn from a personal trainer, from a a musculoskeletal therapist. I've never really been that precious about my, you know, medical doctor title. I'm I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of the training I've been given. But at the same time, I recognize that actually what we're seeing today in the 21st century is an epidemic of problems that in a large part are driven by people's lifestyles. Mm. And I think there have been people out there for many years Mm. in different professions helping to teach people how to create better and healthier lifestyles. And I think sometimes without realizing it as medical doctors, we have maybe, you know, put the brakes on some of these other people because they've sort of spoken to our patients and the patients come and check it with their doctor. And the doctor often, not always, but often will sort of say, oh, no, 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 there's no evidence for that. You know, mm. you know that's not mm. the way to do it. And mm. it's really exciting for me to see both with yourself, but also, you know, with other younger doctors now coming through, we're really believing in this message that actually lifestyle can be our best medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just that whole open-minded culture that we're, we're actually trying to create amongst medical schools and medical students as well. I get a lot of medical students asking me where I get all these resources from. And it's really interesting that you pick up on the fact that we're both like this we both take learning and teaching from other disciplines outside medicine and one of the most important things I learned quite early on was to learn from patients as well because patients would come and say this has really worked for me and rather than just dismissing it like um, perhaps a few GPs would do I listen to that and I do my research behind it as well. And then I go back to them and I say, you know what? That's actually quite good. It's not harming you. It's safe. It's not costing the bank. If this is having some actionable, tangible benefit to you, then I'm all for it. That's absolutely fine by me. And I think perhaps because I had my own health issues, I overcame them with a lifestyle perspective. 
that's what gave me that kind of perspective as well. And, and my, you know, upbringing, my mum was very much into lifestyle when I was growing up. So that sort of permeated through my medical training. And uh, maybe that's why we're a bit more open minded like that as well. Yeah, I think there's a couple of points to pick up on there. I mean, the first one for me is that you listen to your patients. Mm. And I think that is something that is so deceptively obvious <laughs> when we talk about it here. But actually, the system, the way it's currently set up, often doesn't allow that to happen. I recently posted on my Facebook wall about you know what makes an effective consultation. And it's amazing how many members of the public would go and post and say, when they don't feel heard, when they don't feel listened to. Mm. And I've realized actually in, in my 16 years of seeing you know, tens of thousands of patients mm. now that actually listening to your patient has huge therapeutic value yeah. because often they have not, you know, they've never had anyone listen in a non-judgmental fashion and just listen to what they have to say. But the second point about that, I would say, is we should always be learning from our patients. If a patient comes to see us and says, well, I tried this and I feel better, if I don't know about it, I think very much like you, I want to know, I want, I want to learn about yeah. it. I say, oh, well, that's brilliant. Okay. Well, you know what? I'll give you an appointment for two, in two weeks' time, and I'm going to go and look this up and see, is there anything to support that? Yeah. And often, even if there isn't, I'm, I'm very comfortable with harmless interventions that are making people feel better. Yeah. You know, I don't always require, personally speaking, and I, I don't want to speak for you on this, but I... I think evidence is incredibly useful for us to help guide our practice, but it doesn't mm. dictate my practice. Mm. It's just a, a, it's something that guides me. But the other thing, Rupi, and I, I see this with a lot of doctors in this kind of field of you know, lifestyle medicine, uh, for want of a better term, often there's a bit of a personal story or a personal realisation that mm. actually, oh, wow, this has incredible power. W would you mind sharing some of that at all? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so a, a lot of people may have come across my story. I used to suffer from paroxysmal atrial fibrillation episodes, which is where your heart beats very fast and irregularly. I didn't have any clear triggers. It actually started during my junior doctor year, so I'm sure stress had a, a part to play. Um, and going through lots of different hoops and, and investigations and meeting lots of different cardiologists at the time and other uh, medical professionals. Uh, I was offered an ablation. I was definitely going to go for that. My mum was very much dead against that, given her naturopathic lifestyle approach. So I investigated some lifestyle uh, measures and cut a long story short, what I did was put my body in the best environment I could using a lifestyle approach. And just to shorthand that, that is exercise, sleep, mindfulness and nutrition, essentially the things that you talk about very eloquently in your book. And my, my initial aim wasn't to reverse my condition. I think that's really important to, to get that across. It was actually, if I'm being honest, to optimize my body for a procedure that I was planning on having. Okay. But what happened was I reversed my condition. And retrospectively, it's incredibly hard to pick apart exactly why that happened. Was it the supplements I started taking? Was it the uh, nutrition? Was it the mindfulness? Was it, you know, all these different elements? And it was... Obviously now for us, it's the holistic perspective that I took to my body, my environment and putting myself in the best position I could where my body essentially self-healed. And that sounds like a bit of an out there term, uh, a bit kooky, but um, that's essentially what happened. And that's why I'm very open minded about this whole thing. 
Actually, you know, going back to when I was a, a junior, I remember the first time a patient came into me in GP and they came off their medications for blood pressure. I think they were only on one uh, pharmaceutical at the time. And they told me they meditated their way out of their medications. Now, the doctor in me at the time was like, I have no idea what this <laughs> is. Like. I don't know who this patient is, why they're talking to me about meditation, meditating your way out of blood pressure. But the most important thing is I didn't dismiss it. And I said, you know, that's great. In my head, I was like, this sounds a bit weird, but that's great. I'm, I'm quite conscious that I want to keep abreast of, of how your blood pressure is changing over the next few months, because in my head, it was like, well, that's clearly not right. But then I did some research behind it, and it was really interesting what I came up with. And that has now permeated through my clinical practice now, where I actually talk very openly about meditation and stress-relieving factors, because as you know, it's a massive driving force, the stress that we have in our lives. It really is, and there's so many interesting points to pick up on, on what you just said, Rupi. I mean, it's a very inspiring story, and I mm. think... You know, I find uh, with my patients, as I'm sure you do, when you share little insights about yourself and what happened on your journey, I think it really connects with people. And I think people buy in a little bit as well when they yeah. when they hear you've been through stuff. And, mm. you know, I'm, I'm delighted you did reverse your condition. And mm. it's, it's fascinating that that wasn't your goal. Your goal was to have the operation, that yeah. procedure, the ablation, yeah, yeah. just to optimise how well your body, well, the state your body was in, to optimise that environment so to give you the best chance of actually coping yeah. with that procedure. But yeah. but by doing that, you ended up getting rid of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, what do you do there? Do you, do you pretend that hasn't happened or do you mm. then start to question, okay, well, maybe there's something in that? Yeah. And I would argue it doesn't really matter which component it was. Mm. I think one of the hardest things we have with our nutrition and lifestyle philosophy is getting that exact evidence to say which component yeah. was it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, as you know, I've, I've had the immense pleasure of making some documentaries to BBC One. And I remember the first series that this five-year-old boy had, um, he was under three doctors. He had a really bad eczema. He was under a dermatologist. He was under a gastroenterologist for his reflux. And he also would see his GP for a very different kind of tummy cramp pain. And I was convinced that it was all the same thing in the sense that if I could optimise his gut mm, health, mm. I had a suspicion that all three of those seemingly separate conditions might get better. And I changed a few things. I changed you know, multiple things to do with his lifestyle. And I remember one of the critiques uh, levelled at me in the media afterwards was, uh, well, you, you changed multiple things. How do you know which one it was? Yeah. And it really made me thinking, we've been very much trained and schooled. And I guess this works very well for pharmaceuticals and for drugs. Yeah, you know, totally, yeah. Take 100 people, put 50 people on a drug, mm. 50 people don't take that drug, mm. who gets better? Mm. I get that. But often the, the interventions that we're recommending are, mm. are harmless and actually mm. they work in a very synergistic way. Yeah. So why I'm passionate about what I call the four pillars of health is because I think it's a very simple framework that patients can apply and I actually think doctors can apply it to actually help their own health. Totally, yeah. Um, and I think there's a beautiful simplicity there. I think it's actually deceptively simple because I think when, when people do take that 360-degree approach to these four critical areas of health, I think they all play off one another. You, mm. do want, you, know, you know yourself when you eat better, mm. often it makes you want to move more. Mm. And if you move more, often your sleep is better. Yeah. And it, it, it's... You, you can't really isolate them. Has that been your experience? Yeah, totally, yeah. And I think maintaining that holistic perspective is something that we need to get used to talking about as clinicians as well. And particularly with the work that you've done and with the work that lots of other medics are doing in this field, it's 
giving a lot more confidence to other medical practitioners to A, do it themselves. And when you actually do it yourself, you're much more enthusiastically talking about it with your patients as well. And going back to the the evidence base, I think, yes, we are trained in medical school to look at the gold standards of evidence base. And that is very, very important for everyone to get across. But often we use things like randomized control trials. We use a standard format, which is really good at looking at single variables and seeing how they perform and how one intervention performs against each other. But like you said, our biology is trillions of different processes at the same time. And the sorts of medicines, and I say that in vertical because I believe it is still medicine, meditation is medicine, exercise medicine, food is medicine. These are multiple different uh, interventions that we're doing simultaneously. So it's incredibly difficult to, to to put in the same framework that is geared towards testing one variable at a time. Yeah. It's almost impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think when you do go and look at these lysol interventions and you start digging into the research, they have such widespread effects on different pathways in the body. So, you know, for example, if you haven't slept very well, Yes, we know that your hunger hormones and your hormones that help signal satiety, they're all changed. So we all know that when we don't sleep well, we crave poor and more sweet food choices the next day. We're more insulin resistant when we haven't uh, slept well. Our levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, go up when we haven't slept well. These are all different things that Mm. are going on in the body. Absolutely. But, you know, food, uh, a huge part of Doctor's Kitchen is about foods Mm. and we know that food is information for our bodies. Foods can change the expression of our genes. Yeah. Food can change hormone levels in our body. And yeah. we, we don't look at it in that way. We know drugs can do these things, mm. but actually we don't think, well, actually lifestyle can. Yeah. You know, exercise increases BDNF, brain-derived mm. neurotrophic factor, which is like miracle growth for our brain. Mm. Mm. You know, if we had a drug that could do that, we'd be shouting from the rooftops what Absolutely. it does. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. It is, it is remarkable. I think there, the science actually is there. Mm, mm. Um, and maybe we have to be a bit smarter with how we interpret it. But I'd like to talk to you about your book, Rupi. Mm. It's fantastic that it's out there now. Mm. Um, I'm sure it was a, a labour of love, potentially. Uh, massively, yeah. I think we were doing it simultaneously, right? So yeah. <laughs> I remember texting you, we were like, when's your deadline? Oh, yeah, my deadlines are coming up. And uh, yeah, it was... It was a labour of love for but sure. Can you, but... can, you, can you tell me a little bit about the research that went into that? Because yeah. I know from Chatterjee, you really spent a lot of time trying to find the research mm. for these recipes that you mm. put in the book. Yeah. And I'm interested, was the research there and, and, and how did you find it? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I described the, the book as a culinary journey through food and medicine, where I've created a hundred delicious recipes, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, and some paste as well, that are mirrored by the scientific evidence the plethora of different studies that permeates through my philosophy around food. And I, the first section is about exactly what you're just talking about, uh, how our food affects our, our genes, the expression of our genes, rather, um, how it affects the microbiome, the very foundations of our existence, all those different things. And I think there's probably over two, 250 academic references there that I've pulled from multiple different sources. One from medical school, where I, where I looked through all my nutrition lectures, some from the functional medicine world, where they practice a lot of lifestyle medicine, some from traditional journals like Cell and Gastroenterology and Nature, because there is so much fascinating stuff out there that I'm using on a daily basis and I'm thinking about when I recipe create on a weekly basis and I talk to people and when I do talks and stuff like that. And I just wanted to get out onto food 
but making it digestible, excuse the pun, making it easy and accessible as well. So it's not just about certain ingredients that are highly priced. It's about making wellness and this whole era of lifestyle medicine accessible to everyone. And that's something I'm truly passionate about. Yeah, I've, I've seen that actually in the things you write about and things you post about. It's not just about you know, uh, feeding the middle class as well. It's about yeah, making yeah. it reach all sectors of the population. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, until recently, I worked at a practice in Oldham, mm. um, which is, there are certain populations there which I would say don't have access to the same things that other more affluent populations have. And I served for a good seven years, mm. uh, a community where a lot of them were on uh, benefits. A lot of them didn't have much disposable income. Mm. And what I found incredibly hard was... I could spend those 10 minutes, would often turn into 30 minutes. Yeah. We had a hugely high rate of type 2 diabetes and childhood obesity, things that I regard as completely preventable. And in many cases, I regard them as reversible mm. if we give patients the right information. But what I really realized is that I can spend half an hour with this family and I can empower them with all this information. But then if they walk out that door and it is too hard for them to make those lifestyle choices... Mm then it's never going to work. And, yeah. and often that did happen. And I remember in that practice, if I ever forgot to bring my lunch, mm. which was rare, but, yeah. but, but if I, but if <laughs> yeah. I did and I, yeah. I walked out of the practice to go and buy some lunch, mm. I found it incredibly hard to buy anything healthy. Yeah. It was kebab shops. It was fried chicken shops. Yeah. It was, you know, £1.20 for mm. a very, very filling meal. And I thought, mm. wow, that's what these guys are facing on yeah. a day-by-day -day basis. And even trying to you know, I think we are trying to help empower patients to give them that knowledge, which I think is critical. But I think personal responsibility across a society only goes so far. I think it's important. But I think we also have to help create environments where it's easier for people to make these changes. Totally, yeah. Um, I've yeah. seen that, you, is it, are they called Made in Hackney? Made in Hackney, it, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You yeah, sort of posted yeah. about them quite a bit. They, uh, they're a community kitchen based in Hackney called Made in Hackney, and they basically teach the local community, which happens to be a low socioeconomic area, where to get whole foods from, how to prepare them, how to cook them, and do this on a daily basis. They're really making the link between food uh, and health. And as the only medic in the organization, I sort of offer a, a clinical perspective on why food is so important to health and stuff like that. But I'm passionate about that organization because I really see that as the blueprint for going forward and how GP surgeries up and down the country need to be affiliated with community kitchens, just like Made in Hackney, where you or me as a GP can say, hey, you know, you're not eating that right. Maybe you need to learn how to use sweet potatoes or more whole vegetables or different sorts of root vegetables and that kind of stuff. There's a really good community kitchen around the corner. Uh, go check them out and they'll be able to help you with all these different things that we've been talking about today. That really is the future. It's something so simple. It's not pharmaceutical led. It's not something that I believe is um, out there either. I think there's something very actionable going forward. I often get asked by other doctors, like, where do you start? Where, where do you start with like how, how you introduce the conversation to food? And it's really different because I'm not going to start recommending whole nuts and seeds or flax or something like that to someone who doesn't know where they're going to be sleeping in the next couple of weeks because oh. they're on benefits, for example. I'm going to start having conversations with them on a completely different level compared to someone else who might already be very educated in food and just wants to know how to heighten their awareness of different sorts of foods or cook a particular sort of meal.
Well, that, that comes down to what we were talking about right at the start of this podcast, mm. which is listening to patients. I mean, there's no one rule that, you know, this is the way you deal with your patients. Mm. It really depends who that patient is, what is their understanding, what is their belief, or where are they meeting you at? Yeah. I'd be very fortunate with the documentaries that I've made. I really feel privileged to have made them because I feel that we all talk about wanting more time with our patients. Yeah. And I actually got that time. And, yeah. you know, I actually, although... Yeah, I'm very proud of the help I managed to give these patients. I think they taught me as much as I taught them, if mm. not arguably they taught me more because I have really changed my practice. I've changed how I do things. I've got a much deeper understanding of how the things that we say to patients or, you know, really impact them, but also how a 10 minute consultation, you know, people put on a front, they tell you the information they think you want to hear. Mm. You know, you might ask questions that help you quickly get to the root cause or what you think is the root cause. Yeah. And I think we often miss the big picture. You know, how, how often a week do we get told, yeah, it's, the patient tells you the important thing as they're walking out, mm. door on the handle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, doctor. And the other thing is, <laughs> yeah. and you think that's the crux of the matter. Yeah, you totally. need to get them back in and have that conversation. Totally, yeah. Um, but I've also seen you know, patients and families from all different socioeconomic classes. And if we just deal with food for a minute, I agree with you. I think healthy, sustainable eating is and should be available to every single person in this country. Totally, yeah. And I think that's what we should be striving for. Mm. And, and have you found that on social media, uh, and obviously your main channel seems to be Instagram, mm. I know you're across them all, and mm. um, I'd love you to share with the listeners where they can find you. Sure thing, yeah. Um, but I'm really interested as to have you, has there been any kickback against, or have people been talking about, you know, this is all very well for you know, wellness is to preserve the middle classes mm, and it's mm. it's not accessible to all. Has mm. that come up anywhere or in your conferences or anything like that? Definitely, yeah. And I think it's a prevailing argument that I have to deal with in clinic quite a bit. This whole notion that healthy eating is inaccessible and it's expensive for the majority of people. And I'm really trying to smash that preconception about healthy eating because when you do it right and you learn the different sorts of hacks that I, I talk a little bit about in my book as well, it doesn't become more expensive than the average household can actually afford. Sorry, my Instagram is doctors underscore kitchen if you want to look at the different sorts of recipes. And you'll see that I try and use just normal, wholesome ingredients with a little bit of spice, a little bit of flair every now and then, just to make it exciting and accessible for the majority of people. But that is something that comes up quite a bit in, in clinic in particular. And just giving little bits of advice of how they can actually heighten the nutrient density of their meals without breaking the bank and how do you can prepare from scratch, which takes a little bit more time but it's much better for you in the long run that's sort of how we get around that it's it's about sort of convincing not only our patients but also the culture of new medics about why this is an important uh, discussion to have once you empower people about how their food has a direct impact on health then you can inspire them to spend a little bit more time per week choosing food or maybe even a little bit more money as well. I think we've spent as a proportion of our household income less on food going over the last 20, 30 years. So we need to really address that balance because we're spending a bit more on technology and clothing and all the rest of the things which are great but you know, ultimately we need to look after our things and the most important thing of which you should be putting the blueprint for every other aspect of your life is your health first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point and people talk about the expense of food and, and absolutely I recognise that for certain populations it, it can be incredibly difficult and mm. we need to help create change. But I think also we also have to recognise actually maybe 
there is a certain cost to health mm. in, in the modern mm. world and and maybe that's a cost that we don't we're not prepared to pay as a society mm. uh, again I'm, I'm keen to add I, I do recognize that certain foods actually are beyond the price of some people and I think we have to make food more accessible to, to, to different communities and different populations totally. but also that we have to prioritize I mean you know how much importance do we give mm, yeah. uh, um, and to these things in, in your book, do you talk about different conditions and different recipes that can actually help different conditions? Yeah, I talk a little bit about that, but I'm quite careful not to add a prescriptive element to food because, as you know, the root cause of any disease can be completely different to sure. another. So it might be due to stress levels or sleep or lack of exercise. You can't just eat healthy food and expect to be 100% well the whole time. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. It's the balance between everything else that's going on in your lifestyle. So it's certainly one of the most important features of health and I think it's the most important health intervention that we can make but it's really the delicious conversation starter to lifestyle medicine if I can convince people that they can take care of their health with delicious meals that is quite easy to have a conversation around then perhaps we can have a talk about sleep and meditation and maybe sure. address some other things that are less sort of well recognized about how that has an impact on health because I think most people will recognize that food is important health intervention you are what you eat and all these different sayings that we say quite commonly in society but we don't really action but things like meditation and and sleep and how important sleep is and all those different things that's a little bit more on the periphery of people's understandings so so really that's kind of like my way in it's like a trojan horse (laughs) and i think i think you're absolutely right i think if you'd asked me five or six years ago what i thought the most important component was i would have probably said food Mm. well i would definitely have said food yeah yeah I've actually evolved my thinking on that. It's not that I don't think food's important. I've just learned from patients that actually different people want to start at a different point. And my personal bias is food Mm. because that's what I did. (laughs) And therefore, I think think all of us on some level probably reflect our personal biases into a consultation Mm -hmm. as much as we try not to. I certainly think we possibly do. I mean, yeah, I can't obviously speak for every doctor. Mm. I know there's a great article, I think it's in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2015, showing that you know doctors who engage in physical activity themselves are much more likely to counsel their patients yeah. on physical activity. Mm. Mm. So I think this really feeds into that. You know, Our own practices with nutrition and lifestyle really influence the conversations we have with our patients. But I've also realised that some patients I've had, particularly I can give a couple of mental health patients with depression, you know, didn't really want to change their diet. And I'm very passionate that our food can impact our moods, mm. but they wanted to get more physically active first. Mm. And that was their gateway to get to food. Yeah. So again, it all comes back to listening to patients and hearing where are they at? Maybe Absolutely. they want to start meditating, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. although it's not common. So there will be some people out there who want to tackle that first. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, I really like what you're doing, Ruby. I, I find it incredibly inspiring. I'm, I'm not surprised that actually so many people are following you now and are, and are really trying to take your information and actually help them in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, you know, like you, I share a similar mission in terms of trying to help doctors totally. understand the importance so, so we can help. You know, burnout is a big problem at the moment. You know, GPs, there's such a high level of disillusionment and, mm. and workload and yeah. stress. Yeah. So I'm, I think not only can we help patients, we can help doctors look uh, after themselves absolutely. better. Absolutely, yeah. I was just at the Royal College of GPs, actually. There was a wellness focus event. 
And we're talking about different strategies in which to help other GPs that are facing burnout. Because I think you've experienced burnout. I've experienced burnout. That's why I ran away to Australia and did emergency medicine, which I found much more relaxing than being a full-time GP. And uh, one of the things I suggested is culinary medicine, where we actually teach GPs and other hospitalists and different specialties in medicine how to cook and how to take better care of themselves. Because just like that Jammer article about how if you're more active and physically active, then you're much more likely to talk to your patients about it. If we employ lifestyle practices ourselves, then we can do the same thing. So we can talk about meditation. We can have a bit more of an open-minded conversation about where patients are at as well. So that's yeah. something that's really important. Yeah, well, Rupi, I know you've got big plans coming up in, in terms of you know trying to be part of the conversation in terms, mm. in terms of helping doctors learn how to cook and yeah. therefore help their patients. I yeah. think that's incredibly exciting. As you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of often, including on the last uh, documentary series, I, I talk about what I consider to be four key pillars of health, mm. you know, eat, move, sleep and relax, and how I feel it's a really good template for people to apply in their own lives to think, actually, which pillar do I need the most work on? Maybe I'll start there at the moment and, yeah. and see where I go. I think it's deceptively simple because I've seen the power when people do apply that. I think it can be really quite profound. But one thing I'd love to do is ask you, what are your sort of four top tips that sure. you'd give to maybe the listeners of this podcast and how they can improve their own health? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's so many different ways in which to start on this. So I'll start with food, as I always do. But um, eating colourfully is probably one of the easiest things that I suggest to patients because rather than counting calories or counting macronutrients, I think we need to get to the bigger picture, which is where the quality of our food is coming from. And one of the most exciting things that I first came across that really put me on this trajectory about, around food is the notion of phytochemicals, the different chemicals that we find in plants that confer benefits to us through multiple different ways, like impacting the expression of our genes, impacting our inflammation pathways, etc. So eating colourfully is a really good right. way. I often get like Buddha bowls, uh, Google images on my computer screen and just show people like this is literally what you want to be eating. Yeah. on a daily basis these different colors and you can talk about the different ways in which you know that can uh, confer benefits so eating colorfully is great mise en place or preparing is something that i do every day so using tupperware making sure i've got my lunch sorted because unfortunately we live in in very fast-moving societies and, and cities where the convenient options are not always the best Obviously, I still use them where I can, but where possible, I try and prepare as much yeah. as possible. So bringing lunches in, preparing your garlic and having everything like chopped, like your ginger and chili and all the rest of it before you start cooking as well is a nice little tactic I use because cooking for some people is not a relaxing activity. It can be very stressful. So making sure you're preparing in that way as well is going to prepare yourself for a bit more successes in the kitchen. And then I would say the third thing is sleep. It's probably one of the least recognized factors in chronic health conditions that we're seeing. So just like we were talking about earlier about how sleep deprivation can affect different hormone levels that increase your sort of desire for food, it reduces society. It means that you're going to have those cravings and grab an arm and cross on your way to work and stuff much more readily than if you were um, to have good amounts of sleep and then actually your hunger levels go down. And of course, all the different other factors that sleep affects as well, like uh, melatonin and the different hormones that we have and how that has antioxidant effects and um, restorative mechanisms to our brain health and things like that. So sleep is super important and prioritizing that, not eating too late, making sure you're putting yourself in a calming state before bed. The things that you talk about in your book uh, is absolutely fantastic. 
And the fourth thing is something that I've been practicing for years, but I recently put on my Instagram account and it's practicing gratitude. So uh, I do this exercise uh, on my Insta stories every day where I think of three things that I'm grateful for that have happened during the day. And really it's a practice that reminds you and reminds me on a personal level about the magnitude of life and how there are multiple different things that occur on a daily basis that are absolutely wonderful. And it can be coming across a tree that you hadn't had a good look at before. It could be, you know, appreciating the fact that you just spoken to your sibling and you don't speak to them every day or a, a kind gesture that someone gave you on the bus or the way to work or something like that. Those little elements of life that actually give you so much positive energy can sort of overshadow any of the stresses or any of the smaller things that give us a lot of um, inflammation-producing hormones in our yeah. body and stuff. And it really just gives you the bigger picture. And I think that's a nice little thing to do before going to bed so you don't ruminate and actually allows you to have a better sleep. So those are probably my four things to, to round up Yeah, on. Rupi, they're, they're great. I think, you know, I'm, I'm on board with all of them. And uh, it's interesting what we said about gratitude. That's mm. something that I talk a lot about mm. in, in my book. Um, in fact, one of the kind of the structure of my book is um, there's, there's four key components to it, the four pillars, and 25% of the book is on each. So I'm really trying to give equal priority to food, movement, sleep, and relaxation, and give people five possible interventions in each that they can do to help improve their health. Fantastic. And I, I say you absolutely don't need to do all of them. You know, doing all 20 is going to be, frankly, very hard in the modern world. Yeah. But I say you, you need to find what's right for you mm. and give people tools on how to do that. But one of the tools in the relaxation pillar is gratitude. Mm-hmm. And I talk about a game that we play at home with my wife and my two kids Every single day, we all be sitting around a dining table. And it's actually a game. Well, it's not really a game. It's an exercise I learned from the strength coach, Charles Poliquin. Mm. And we have to go around and we all have to answer it. It's um, firstly, you know, what have you done today to make someone else happy? Mm. What has somebody else done to make you happy? And what have you learned today? And although it started off as being a really good thing for the kids to do, (laughs) actually it's a really great thing for for me and certainly my wife as well to do. It helps us reflect and it really helps, you know, this whole connection piece. It helps us, you know, instead of just mindlessly eating our food, we're all communicating, we're learning about each other's day. And so, you know, just sort of share that personal story. That's that's what goes on in the Chastity household pretty much every night. (laughs) Um, That's great to hear. So, so Rupi, look, Thank you so much for making some time today to come on my podcast. If you want to just tell people the name of your book, where they can buy it, uh, you've obviously mentioned your social media channels. But, you know, I highly recommend everyone listening, you do go and take a look at Rupi's book and see if it's something that you can implement in your life to help you. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, the book's called The Doctor's Kitchen. I've kept it pretty simple. And uh, you can find me on doctors underscore kitchen and on my website, thedoctorskitchen.com. Well, thanks, Rupi. Thanks for creating the time. And uh, no doubt I'll get you back on the podcast in a few months let's as things it. progress for both of us. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. That's the end of this week's Feel Better, Live More podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you found the conversation useful, but also enjoyable. If you're not already, I'd highly recommend that you subscribe to this podcast so that you can be notified when the latest episode of my podcast comes out. I'd also be incredibly grateful if you consider going onto iTunes and giving this a five-star rating so that I can get this information out and reach more people. It really does make a difference. 
And if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to see me have conversations with on this podcast, I'd encourage you to get in touch with me on social media using the hashtag #FeelBetterLiveMore. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at Dr Chatterjee and on Twitter using the handle at Dr Chatterjee UK.